everyone, and welcome back to HOA It's a True Story. Today our guest is Brian Newman. He's the president of Newman Sloat Arnold Architects. We are going to be talking with Brian today about the different types of architecture and expert work that they perform and the different types that all architects do. Brian, thank you for joining us today and welcome to HOA It's a True Story. My pleasure. Brian, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into the niche industry of this side of architecture. I went to school at University of Michigan and I was very interested in the art school. I was kind of taking art classes and stuff. And I thought to myself, well, I don't want to be a starving artist. So the art school and the architecture school are in the same building. And I always had, you know, kind of fancied myself as, you know, maybe being an architect one, one day, designing houses, you know, drawings to draw buildings and stuff like that. And then I got into construction. So while I was going to school in the summers, I would work in an architecture office, but I would also be out in the field swinging in a hammer. And so when I graduated, I started doing traditional architecture, designing buildings, doing additions, remodeling, things like that. And I always kind of got slotted into the construction documents because I had experience on the field. So I was, you know, doing construction documents, doing all the detailing and things like that. And when I moved to California, I had a couple of friends who were working in a building envelope firm, Rosenberg McGinnis, which is a company that started sort of building envelope architecture back in the day. And I used to call them up and ask them for advice and, you know, ask them, what would you do here? What kind of memory would you use? I got a threshold that I'm doing, you know, transitioning over this. And finally, Ron McGinnis, one day I sat down with him because I would go in and have visit with him. And he said, why don't you just come work for me? You know, why are you asking me these questions? Why are you bugging my people? Why don't you just come work for me? <laughs> well, it turns out the design firm that I worked for, I pulled a 40-hour stint. I worked 40 hours straight and was told that I was done working, that I was gone, that I was getting laid off. And I thought, wow, that's, uh, there's traditional architecture for you. So I went and I took six months off, went crazy, went camping, went rock climbing, drove all over the Eastern Sierras. And just before my unemployment ran out, I sat down in front of Ron and I said, Ron, I need a job. And Ron said, well, somebody just left, you're hired. And I said, okay, give me two weeks. And I took off again. And I came back and I started working with Rosenberg McGinnis. And this was late eighties. So I started you know, going from traditional conventional architecture to building envelope architecture. So what building envelope architecture is often have described this is like, we don't design anything. I'm not gonna pick your colors. I'm not gonna pick your finishes. I'm gonna look at your roofs, your walls, your doors and your windows and below grade. And I'm gonna do the construction documents for those parts of the building. I often tell people I'm the guy standing between the architect and the contractor. I give the contractor a fighting chance because I'm gonna take those beautiful designs and I'm actually gonna create documents that make it buildable, durable, and waterproof. So that's what okay, I- Okay, so if you're making the documents, then what are the differences, for example, of an architect that builds the buildings and someone they just call a design professional? Well, design professionals are often, like you could call an architect or an engineer, somebody like the design professional, somebody that designs something. But you can also get into lighting designers, AV designers, you know, color designers, acoustical designers, interior designers. So there's a whole slew of people. Back in the day when architects were more of a traditional role, you kind of did all of that. You drew, you detailed everything. You, you showed people how to build stuff. You showed them where you wanted the lights. You wanted all the colors, the pictures. And over time, 
it's become specialized. So now you have all these different consultants providing a specific wall. I've even done projects where a contractor will build the shell of the, the geometry of the building. And then he goes away and an interior design firm comes in and does the interiors of it. They work with the lighting designers, the uh, AV consultants, the, all the acoustical people. So there's a lot of different people that get involved in a building that was not originally traditional architecture. Now we have, you know, half a dozen geotechnical guys, there's you know, soils guys, structural. All of those people are what you might refer to as a design professional that go into what we call as a design team. That's what it takes to build these houses and buildings that we're building today. Where does the forensic aspect come in? Because I know that when we work with architects on litigation, they often reference the forensic side of it or the building is sick and we need a forensic expert. Yeah, the forensic part of our work comes um, because we deal with exterior envelopes. A lot of times what we are dealing with are quote unquote leaks, what we call moisture intrusion, unintended moisture. So how do you figure out where the moisture is coming from? You have to do a site investigation. And that's where you're starting to do forensic analysis of the building. A lot of it is just visual observations. You might do some water testing. You might do some destructive testing where you start peeling apart. It's the building to start getting into how it was built and what resulted in the failure that saw the leak. With construction defect work, you might have a big complex that was built and one neighbor's talking to another neighbor. They both have the same problem. They both have a leak here. They go to an HOA meeting and they realize that, you know, there's a half a dozen people in the room that have a similar issue, a similar leak. They would then call somebody like me up and I would go out and I would look at the entire complex. We would do a review and analysis of the whole place with recommendations to do additional investigation. And that's where you might identify areas that have you know, maybe staining, discoloration, failures, either stucco failures, cracks, wood decay, maybe window leaks, roof leaks, things of that nature. What you do is you go out there and you look at the entire building and you do it with a visual analysis with destructive testing and with water testing. And what you're doing is you're putting together a picture of how the building was built and what is it, what kind of state is the building in and what are the issues that are resulting in all of these problems. That's often then put into with a lawyer, put into a package and you go into mediation and you start looking at suing the developer who ever built the building. I don't love that kind of work because it's very emotional and people get very caught up in it. There's money and there's a lot of emotions and, and it can be a you know kind of a you know, a charged environment, but we like to do it because you know that's our way of getting the tail end work. You know, if I'm going to work hard to get an HOA, you know, six, seven, eight million dollars, I'd love to be on the receiving end and help them spend that and put back their buildings. You know, give them what they bought, do the repairs, do the fixes, and get out of the way. So um, we call that rehabilitation construction. That's yeah. more what you're interested in. Well, I do the, the construction defect litigation work in order to get the reconstruction work. Because I, so, I like helping a group of people put their buildings back together. You know, it feels good to like not get to know everybody, but to help everybody. You know, and it's it's a nice position to be in because you're not you're not just spending their money. You're actually helping them get their buildings back. So, so we are a construction company before we're a podcast company. And <laughs> we do a lot of support of litigation. And we, we've learned that we're kind of getting away from calling it destructive testing and calling it intrusive 
testing, right? Because I know it used to really, uh, like you said, it's very emotional when people think, yeah, you want to come in and look at my place. And next thing you know, we're cutting walls open and they get very freaked out and concerned and yeah. worried at what that's going to do. And when you're ready to go in and really do a deep dive into what the problems are with a building, what is it that you guys direct us to do? Do you, how do you go about opening that envelope? Is it always interior? Is it exterior? How do you look at it to get your answers? A lot of times we're going to do some water testing, which is very often the first step. We would want to remove interior finishes that are obstructing the view of the, how the building was built. So if we're out in a balcony deck and it's leaking into a room below, we would want to open up the ceiling of that room below so that we can view the structure of the deck. And you're really doing that to, to, you know, for a number of things. You're trying to trace the path of the water, but you're also trying to identify the water immediately so that you're not putting gallons and gallons and gallons of water to something and just flooding everything. You literally want to try and catch the first drip. You know? So in order to do that, you open things up. And you know, we often, are, we're, you know, a big part of my job is educating people. And I have to explain to them, it's like, you know, it's cheaper for us to, to rip out your sheetrock and put your sheetrock back. That's the cheapest thing. It's the cheapest material we got. You can put it back, mud it, tape it, paint it. You'll never know it was taken out. But to come back and do it after the fact, it's going to be very intrusive and very expensive. So open it up, get the best view of the, of the building as possible so you can see the interior parts of the wall, the underside of the deck, how the building was put together, where the water is getting in. So that's important. After we do testing, you might identify a location where you put water on it, it leaks. You put water over here, it stops leaking. You put water on it again, it's still leaking. Okay, you put water beyond it, it doesn't leak. You come back, okay, there's something right here. That's when we'll let it dry out and we'll, we'll talk to a company like you and say, let's peel this back. Say it's stick with a deck, say it's on a deck and it's just on the surface. We'll start taking out the tile or the walking surface. We'll start to get down to the layers that are underneath, the membrane, the drainage mat, looking for flashings, anything that's the reason that water is getting in. You know, my partner loves to call it the peeling of the onion. You're peeling onion. back the bits of the onion to see what you get. So you slowly, carefully get in there. And that's that's the one thing people, people think it's like, you know, destructive testing. It's really not. And that's why there's companies like yours that we use that know and understand exactly how to quote unquote deconstruct a building. Right. It's not demo, right? It's peeling it back. I don't want to see a chisel mark into the membrane. I don't want to see holes in the building paper as caused from the DT. I want it to see peeled back piece by piece so you can really identify what caused the problem what was done either not to code or not to industry standards. What is the issue that's resulting in the leak? So you brought up a really good point. I know from our years of experience, there is a method to opening things up slowly and methodically piece by piece. So the architect or expert can look at it because if you just pull everything off, then you can't always use all that information in your report. Is that correct? I mean, right. it's got to be done in a manner and photographed and documented so that it supports your findings. Right. And that bar gets raised significantly when there's when you're talking about a construction defect litigation project. The samples you take, the, uh, the control of those samples, who had possession of the samples, 
log them, document them, show them before, during, and after removal. There's a lot of protocols that go into the quote-unquote destructive testing on site. You know, if you're taking samples, what are you doing with them? Who has possession of them? Where have they been stored? Who's cataloged them? All of that stuff. So it's it's a critically important part of the project because you know if you just demo stuff, you can have all the opinions in the world. You might be absolutely right, but you better have the evidence to show it. You know, my opinion doesn't yes. mean anything unless it's backed up. So since this information is being used and you're the expert in testifying to it. If it's not done correctly, they can still deconstruct your case and your argument in there. So everybody's role is super important. And you mentioned the chain of custody of the products as they get used. And I know several of the law firms are extremely cautious about chain of command on that chain of custody. So that's another area that you know, things can't get thrown away willy-nilly. Things have to be put back a certain time frame to keep both the homeowners understanding, you know, that we're not going to leave your house this way, completely opened up. And then also to try to leave no footprint that we've been there, right? Yeah. The biggest yeah. cons complaint I think that we've heard over the years is, wait a minute, you found the problem? And the expert would say, well, yeah, we found it. And they'll go, well, are you going to fix it? No, we're not fixing it. Why aren't you fixing it? You have it open. We can't fix it right now. We have to go in and litigate for it. The homeowners don't always understand why the repairs aren't being done right then and there. However, I know there are some cases where the experts can get together and create a repair. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, you know, I have a case right now where we actually got together with the other side. You know, we were out there doing the destructive testing. There was a bunch of us on site contractor, the plaintiff side, the defense side expert. And we looked at a lot of stuff together um, and we, we didn't have a lot of attorneys involved. Sometimes attorneys can kind of muddy the waters. Yeah. And when, when you're dealing with another expert, it, you're kind of looking at stuff that is what it is. There's not a lot of ways to spin, you know, a condition or this or that. And you can talk to each other. There's no pressure. You're not trying to win the battle here. You're just talking about what are you seeing? This is what I'm seeing. This is what I'm thinking. I would think that too. You know, so how do we get to a repair for this? Well, obviously we'll have to look at that and this. I would agree that these windows are going to have to go, but those windows over there, there's no problems with them. Do we agree those windows look okay? You know, and we'll maybe do a little destructive testing and we can concur that, you know, this, this bank of windows or these areas or these assemblies this is the problem, and this seems to be a, repeat, a repeated condition on all of these buildings. But all these other windows, these things over here, there, there might be an anomaly or something, but this isn't a wholesale kind of failure. Let's agree that this is the stuff that we're going to fix. So back about 10 years ago, they started to get more and more where they were doing joint destructive testing, where both the plaintiff and the defendant were coming at the same time and that way the houses were only being opened up once versus multiple times and trying to get other people you know to sign up for it so are you seeing now with the cost of construction being what it is are you seeing that there's more opportunity to do joint investigation days yeah, I, I agree because I, you know, I have a good relationship with a lot of people that will sit on the other side of the table for me. And a lot of times what those days afford you is to have some of those conversations that 
you know, you're not trying to make it a matter of record. You're off the record. You're talking to each other on site. You're kind of, you know, you're, you're finding out each other's, you know, where are you looking at this? What's your position going to be? And granted, it doesn't always work out, you know, a smooth, you know, smooth path to the finish line. But you can often understand each other's approach and what you're looking for and what you're going to hold them accountable for. And then, like you said, I think the homeowners, that, that's a big part of it because you're asking a lot of these people to, I mean, a lot of them have never been around construction. They're, they're not real sophisticated. And all of a sudden you've got 20 guys in their unit ripping things apart and, you know, wanting to leave it open and telling them, well, there's going to be another crew that comes in next week. They're going to see this stuff. They may open up more. You know, that that makes people crazy and you know they don't want to do litigation if that's the case so it helps to get it kind of all done together as much as possible because you know you, you got to keep you got to keep tenants at least you know informed aware of the process but, it, but give them a reality check of what this really means right. uh, and if you can make them understand that you're really trying to work with them and their, their schedule their calendars they can be a lot more amenable but it's i always feel bad for the, the people that volunteer uh, i i don't know if somebody tricked them into volunteering or if they weren't aware of what they were going to do or you know i often yeah. house on the hoa president because nobody else is going to do it I'm like all right well you can use my unit well there's always two there's always two the people that have the problem so they want you to get in there and go yeah. find it and they're willing to let you do whatever you got to do and then those that just kind of sure yeah you could come in and don't realize entirely what they've been signing up for. Yeah, Let's yeah. switch gears for a second. What type of failures in the building are the most common? Mm, that's a good question. It's interesting. I, I, I think I would have a hard time looking at specific types of failures other than specific assemblies, other than maintenance type issues. Uh -huh. I, think, I think lack of maintenance is probably the biggest thing that results in progressive conditions. Because once you get a leak, it's a progressive condition, right? If you don't address it now, it's going to affect something else. It's going to affect something else and ongoing. So I find, you know, minor leak issues, minor maintenance issues, if they're not addressed, they can really blow up into somebody's face. Yeah. Right. It's just, yes. and, and I, you know, one of the things I tell people is like, bust your piggy bank now, because this problem is only going to grow and it's only going to get more expensive and cost more you're better off attacking it full force now and putting it behind you today. You know, do whatever it takes. Uh, you don't want to let this grow. We argue so often with people about maintenance and why it's so critical that they do their maintenance. It's probably the number one topic I've been speaking on over the 30 years of my career. And it's very interesting that the managers I know really struggle with getting boards to understand it's cheaper now than it's going to be later. Yeah. And sometimes it's motivated out of, it's not my unit. I don't want to deal with it. I'm not going to pay for it. But I really, I really hope they'll listen to that because that's probably the one thing I see. Also, I also see that the more moving parts there are to an area. So the most leaks we tend to see are around doors, windows, where two systems are kind of coming together you know, right. roofs and that sort of thing. And penetrations through the envelope. You're absolutely right. I, mean, I would say that's, if you had to pick an issue or a condition or an assembly, it's penetrations through the building envelope, you know, windows, doors. That's, that's always, you know, a sliding glass door onto a deck. They'll, you know, I could guarantee you, they're almost always going to have some leaks associated with those assemblies. When did they start using flashing? 
because I know a lot of the older buildings, when we open them up, there's no flashing anywhere in them. You know, they're just building paper. Well, you know, it depends. If you go back far enough, flashings were actually a lot more commonly used. I've done buildings in San Francisco where they have a copper, a decorative copper panel, right? Mm -hmm. Well, that copper panel has a flange at the top that goes in and goes underneath this big wood window. And at the bottom, it has a big piece that comes out and head flashes the window below. And from the street, it's like, well, it's just a big piece of copper that has a duck on it. But it's actually, you know, it's designed as part of the cladding to actually flash the window sill above and provide head flashing above. So huh. that's one of the things that I noticed is that way back, if you look at buildings that are old enough, you actually start to see these components, but in a, in a previous form and in, done in a previous, in a different manner. They might not have insulation and they might not have like a pan flashing and all the pieces and parts that we might expect. But lo and behold, this decorative copper panel actually is used to flash the, the window opening above and below. So that's what I find is that they're actually, there's more functional use of materials. You see things like trims on, you know, modern wood building. Well, you go back and you see the same trims on an older Victorian in San Francisco. And you realize each one of them has a little lag and a little overlap and a lag and an overlap. And you realize all those things are designed to shed water away from the building. You look at those same profiles today and you, know, you see a water table and sometimes they don't have any overlap. They're, they're asking you to make it up with sealants and caulk and you know do this. But back in the day, they would actually change the shape of the wood to fit. I mean, it's actually, there's beautiful work. Brilliant. Old wood windows and old wood trim and stuff. Some of those Victorians. It's gorgeous how they're put together because the pieces are actually designed to shed water and work together. You don't see that now. You know, we just we just keep putting things onto the building. It's just an additive process. Yeah, yeah. So, and the the cost, I think, to go back and do it the old-fashioned yeah. way is probably not permissible anymore. Yeah, I mean, I love working on the old buildings, really, because of that. It's it's fun to see how they're built. I mean, some of the framing and some of these very complex roofs. And you realize there's a guy up here making this cut by hand and it's a perfect compound miter cut wow. and he did them over and over and over again you just see these perfect cuts all the way through this attic and you realize today's guys couldn't even do that you know they'd have their chop saw set up and they'd have all their jigs out you know and that and that's what's fun taking a beating <laughs> yeah i mean it's fun to see the old buildings just the quality of the work and the craftsmanship and how they how they use materials and you know stuff. So you're talking a little bit about waterproofing. Can an architect then speak to the structure, the waterproofing, the roofs? Does that fall under your umbrella as well, or um, just the design? Yeah, we, we can do a lot of the waterproofing stuff. We're, we're essentially we, we're very very knowledgeable about roofs, right? We know a lot about roofs. We know a lot about roof systems, different manufacturers' requirements. So being a building envelope architect, a lot of people were as a waterproofing firm. So roof packages, you know, window packages, window installs, siding, things like that, exterior deck waterproofing, that's all well within our, our comfort zone. If you start getting into structural damage, that's when I would call a structural engineer. You know, I'm an architect, I can recognize it. I can recognize mold, you know, and I've actually testified to mold, but I'm not gonna test it for you. I won't tell you what type of mold it is but I'll certainly let you know that you need environmental hygienist in here to test the mold or structure in here to, you know, check this, check the caps on this. Sometimes if it's a newer building, we might just say remove a replacing kind 
and the building department is is fine with that. If it's an older building, I'll oftentimes I'll get a structure engineer because it's you know it's, it's above my pay grade to understand how the structure works, and then you're going to need a structure engineer to you know help you calculate to, the loads. Yeah, yeah. Come up with it. So, what should a manager look for that would trigger a phone call to the architect? I kind of go back to that other comment when, when somebody's having similar problems. If the manager's starting to hear a common complaint, you really want to start recording you know complaints and have a history record of either leaks or complaints or issues and you actually you know a lot of times we'll ask have you ever surveyed the, the HOA that the, the membership and you know it's surprising how many people have never done that so often one of the first things we'll do is like let's survey the entire group of people there the entire community and you know no matter how many answers we get we'll be able to start tracking some of those and we start seeing patterns so if a manager is starting to hear patterns and hear similar problems or hear a complaint you know over and over and over again that's a pattern and that should start being looked at because if it's happening one place, two places, three places, it's more than likely happening every single place. And that's, you know, these buildings are built, they're cookie cutter. You have one condition that wasn't quite done right or somebody wasn't sure of exactly how it was detailed. That's going to be a common issue. So if you start hearing common complaints about similar items, that's when I would start getting on the horn and get somebody to come out and look at this common complaint. And if they're ready to just do a rehabilitation repair project, what should they know before they're giving you a call? What type of repair they want to do? Is it replacing like and kind or they want to do something entirely new? Maybe they want new building products, like a new siding instead of old wood. I would probably be very, very familiar with it, what kind of budget they have and reserve studies. I am absolutely shocked at how many HOAs have underfunded reserve study. He was saying some, sometimes the, you know, the board thinks they're there not to spend money. Really what their job is to spend money and to protect the community. Funding your reserves is huge. I've actually done construction defect where you know, we had a million dollars left over in settlement costs and we refunded their survey, their reserve study. You know, I got them two years of money to keep them in their maintenance cycle. That's a big part. You know, where, where did your maintenance money come from? It comes from reserve study, it comes from your life cycle costs. That's really important. So if you have the money, you can, you, you can afford yourself more flexibility. It kind of depends on what people are looking for. If it's got, you know, old siding, it's well past the 10 years of statute of limitations. Um, and they want to do a residing project, they could talk to me and I would help them evaluate different types of siding, different options, the fire hazards that we're seeing now. You know, people are, you know, getting away from wood siding. They want to do, you know, stucco buildings. You know, they're in the loopy areas, so you have the wildlife inter interface. There's a lot of issues that are now going into those sorts of buildings. And the whoopie areas are coming closer and closer. I mean, it's, you know, I've heard legislation proposed it's going to make all of California whoopie. So that means every single building has to fall under the urban interface areas. And you know, a lot of people don't know what that means. So that's stuff if you're going to be changing out your siding and want to do a massive, massive uh, window study or a window replacement. Everybody's got windows that are not working, they're clouding over. What kind of money do you have in your reserve studies? What kind of budget do you have to look at this? Then we can help you start looking at what are your options based on what you have, or is there a special assessment coming? You know, which is the last thing you know, a, a tenant or renter wants to hear, you know, and I, I don't like doing that either, but it's, you know, it is what it is. Well, the name of the podcast is HOA. It's a true story. Do you have a story you want to share today? 
think the last time you asked me this, it was a funny story. I said, I don't have many funny stories. They're mostly horror stories. So, um, Well, here, I'll tell you a story, and then maybe it'll trigger your memory on one. But this was a destructive testing story. And, of course, the law firms talked to all the homeowners to get access into the unit. And the construction crews are all standing around waiting to figure out which unit we're going to. And somebody had canceled last minute and the lady from the law firm was diligently trying to find a replacement unit. And she knocks on the door and asks, this little girl answers and she says, he says, hi, we're here for the destructive testing. We wanna come into the unit. And they didn't realize at the time that they were at the wrong unit number. So the little girl opens the door and lets them come in. And so they, they, we get going, everybody's got everything torn apart, holes are cut in all the walls, experts are going through, and the phone rings and the little girl's talking to her mother, and she's apparently home from school sick, and the mom asks her, you know, what are you doing? And she says, well, I'm just watching all the men work. And she says, what men? There shouldn't be any men at our house. She's, so the mother flies home and finds, you know, 20 people in her unit with all the walls cut open and her little girl's just home sick from school, but allowed everybody to come in and nobody realized that that was the wrong unit that we were in to begin with. So it's kind of funny, but uh, you can only imagine the panic in that parent's voice to come home and find your whole house. uh, Well, I imagine some of those guys panicked a little bit when she showed up and they realized, oops, Wrong unit. Yeah, in fact, I think one of the attorneys told us that story on a podcast having happened to them. And I thought, I think we were the construction company. <laughs> it's kind of fun. but I'll well, tell you what, something recently happened to me. We did a job. We helped build the building. Came back a couple of years later, had some leaks. We asked to get involved in the testing. So we figured out where some of the leaks were coming. He takes that and he decides to go after the waterproofing, the roofer. So he sues the roofer. Now we're getting ready to do some of those repairs, right? I get a call from the owner rep at kind of the 11th hour. He said, uh, we have an issue. Some of that work that we've done on the roof is unpermitted. And I said, like the roof deck? And he said, yeah. I said, you mean the roof deck is unpermitted? And that was the cause of the leaks in the roof that he's suing a roofer over? And he said, yeah. And I said, oh, I'm not helping with that. He said, well, would you be willing to help us with the, with the city? And I said, he's got to go throw himself at the mercy of the city. And no, I don't want me involved. I was there before, during, and after. He did unpermitted work that caused a leak in the roof that he's suing over. It's like, I'm the last guy you want telling the truth. I I said, no, respectfully, no thank you, no thank you. So they're off on their own. And I doubt if I will ever hear from them again. Because this is the kind of, you know, wealthy person that you don't say no to. And I did. But he dug a hole and he jumped in head first. So now he's going to pay for that. Good luck. Brian, does your firm, what territory do you work in? So we can tell our listeners. Well, I have, we have a couple people up in Portland, Oregon. I have a person in Hawaii and we are all over California. We do work literally anywhere. We're licensed. We could do work anywhere unless we're the architect of record. That's only California, Hawaii, and Oregon. But we do a lot of work in Oregon, Hawaii, and a lot of work in California. We've gotten up into Wyoming, Jackson Hole, do a lot of stuff in the mountains, all over the Sierras. If anybody wants to get a hold of you, we can certainly have them reach out to us at inquiry at gbgroupinc.com. 
and we will put you in touch with Brian and his firm. Thanks for listening today. Appreciate your time, and we'll talk to you again on another day, I hope. Great. Thank you very much.